Today from the Global Lane, bye-bye Islamic government. Big changes and peace in Sudan. Enough is enough is what the people have been saying for a number of years, and finally they've had their way. Similar results. Six months of COVID-19 restrictions in the USA, but no lockdown in Sweden. Fear and panic is usually the driver of policies, not actual outcome. Young American adults still living at home with their parents. More than a pandemic to blame? Cuties, cinematic brilliance, or child pornography? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Sudan may soon lose its designation as a terrorist state. The transitional government has already separated religion from the state, thus ending Islamic rule. Now, a U.S. brokered deal would remove Sudan's designation as a terrorist state once the country pays out a cash settlement to victims of the 1998 al-Qaeda attack on the U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. That deal is being held up in the U.S. Senate. Well, here with more is someone who knows Sudan very well. She is Tina Ramirez, president of Hardwired Global, a nonprofit group working to advance democracy and religious freedom worldwide. Tina, it's good to see you again. So in 2012, I know you started a Defenders of Freedom network in Sudan. Now we're seeing these changes. So first, let's discuss uh, Sudan's move away from Islamic law and to democracy. What does that step by the government mean for the people there? Well, Gary, as you know, uh, so this, the people of Sudan for the last three plus decades have been living under a dictator that pushed Islamization, whether even if they were Muslim, they didn't have freedom of conscience, freedom of religion. And so the brutal civil war that finally led to South Sudan's independence was really a result of people just saying enough is enough. And now we've seen that Bashir has been overthrown and the people really want freedom. And that's not just for Christians, it's for Muslims too. They want freedom from a government that is oppressively forcing their conscience on everyone, um, really at, at, you know, at the, at the, at the um, risk of punishment, torture, and, and death. And so enough is enough is what the people have been saying for a number of years, and finally they've had their way. I think the real challenge, though, is going to be if it sticks. Uh, you know, even though Bashir is not there, the military rulers that held him in power for more than three decades are still there and are the ones negotiating this peace. And so the real the real proof is going to be in the next few years if it, it enters into the real permanent constitution after this transitional government. Well, that, that's the key, isn't it, Tina? I, I know I spent many, uh, made many trips to South Sudan uh, over the years, especially in the 90s. And, uh, you know, one concern is that some of these same guys are still in control. It might not be Bashir, but some of the same people that were at his side. Now, a peace agreement was signed at the end of August, granting self-rule for Sudan's Blue Nile, South Kordofan, which is the Nuba Mountains, and West Kordofan. What has to happen now as Sudan proceeds down this road to democracy? What are we missing? Anything? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that this is what we've seen in many countries. And my organization is right now working in South Sudan and helping the government there that it's been free since 2012, but they've still, for the last eight years, They've been in the midst of a civil war. They've never really enshrined that peace or been able to live up to the ideas that they fought for. And so what it reminds us of is that, you know, it's one thing to win, win the war, but it's quite another thing to win the peace. And so right now, the people of Sudan and the people of South Sudan in their own way, and like you said, in the middle region, in the, the Blue Nile and Nuba Mountains, 
we need to, as a country, really invest in how can we help their leadership maintain that peace and build that peace. And it's and it's not going to be by just asking for empty promises and words on a constitution and then and then you know lifting our hands, which is essentially what we saw during the Obama administration. It's going to take a lot of you know rolling your your sleeves up and getting dirty and getting in the mud with them to really help them work through that process. And that's what I've seen firsthand in South Sudan and working with the people there. It's it's a very long haul and it's not something that we can take for granted. Well, I know the Trump administration is trying to help the process along by removing Sudan as a state supporter of terrorism. Now, that would open up the country for investment, development, but first, it needs to compensate the 1998 embassy victims to the tune of, I think, $335 million. Senators Schumer and Menendez are holding up the deal. They want to see 9-11 victims included in that big payout. Now, your thoughts? Should Sudan have to compensate for 9-11 victims, too? It, it says it wasn't complicit in that attack. Uh, and isn't al-Qaeda really the responsible party? Well, yeah, of course al-Qaeda is responsible. The, the issue is that Sudan knowingly allowed Osama bin Laden safe haven in their country. And so the same country that uh, launched attacks on our embassies in two other countries is also the one that you know, Osama bin Laden had safe haven in, and later, of course, he attached he attacked the United States. Now, I don't think that this deal should be held up on that on that account. I think those are two different issues. But I think there is a lot of progress in the fact that we can even get Sudan to pay for the victims in the two embassy bombings that Osama bin Laden is responsible for. But also, you know, beyond just that, there needs to be other things in this deal that really look at. It's one thing to remove a state sponsor of terrorism, but the people haven't changed. So if the people in leadership are still there and we have no guarantee that after transition that they won't still be there and that they won't change all of these um, things that are, are moving forward on now, then there's really no guarantee of, of anything changing in the future. So um, I, I do think that these sanctions need to ultimately be removed, and I hope that they are for the sake of the people of Sudan. But we also need to be realistic that there needs to be a change in leadership and in the um, in the education of the people towards the ideas of freedom uh, that really are going to help them secure it for their future. Tina Ramirez, president of Hardwired Global, thanks for being with us. We appreciate you. Thank you, Gary. This week in Pennsylvania, a federal judge declared Governor Tom Wolf's COVID-19 restrictions unconstitutional. U.S. District Judge William Stickman, a Trump appointee, said forcing people to stay at home, the placing of size limits on gatherings, and non-life-sustaining business shutdowns violate the First and Fourteenth Amendments to the U.S. Constitution. Well, here to discuss the ongoing shutdowns and their effect on society and business is Yunan Weiss. He's a former U.S. Marine, co-founder of RallyPoint. He's also an entrepreneur, investor, and founder and CEO of Kardash. Yanan, thank you for being with us today. So we're six months into shutdowns in some places, and despite that ruling in Pennsylvania, there's still many restrictions on folks in California. Also in New York City, Governor Cuomo says starting September 30th, restaurants can open but only operate at 25% capacity. So how realistic is that? Is it even worth it for those restaurateurs? You know, I live in California now, and I just came back from a trip to Georgia, which opened up in April. And it's interesting to see such a different world, like as a place in Georgia, where there's a lot more freedoms. There are some restrictions, but there's a lot more freedoms. And the health consequence in Georgia has been very similar to California. So if somebody looks at the COVID numbers, uh, the two states look fairly similar. 
One has taken a draconian approach that has shut down businesses, closed churches, uh, closed schools, that being California, and, and one that hasn't, uh, and one being Georgia. Uh, and so I think we all like to think that if we are making these sacrifices, and the question is whether these sacrifices are even constitutional, but if we are making these sacrifices, is it worth it? And we're not seeing that being the case. Well, originally we were told the shutdowns would last only a couple of weeks or so, uh, and that way hospitals would not become overwhelmed, they'd save lives. Very few people are actually dying right now from the virus. I guess none were recorded recently in about 35 states, so no deaths. Now, if you look at the way Sweden handled the pandemic, the country didn't go on lockdown. They've had less than 6,000 deaths. So what happened there? Well, I think that's nature taking its course. What the data has shown is that government actions is not what's preventing or necessarily accelerating deaths. This is a virus. It comes tends to come quickly once it arrives at, at a location's doorstep. Uh, the deaths in cases rise quickly, whether there's masks, whether there's or not, whether businesses are open or not, whether schools are open or not. Um, these are the patterns we've seen in different jurisdictions in different states. The virus comes, the cases go up, and then it goes away. Um, that's what we see in Sweden. Sweden never closed primary schools. They never closed down bars. They never closed down restaurants. They never shut down businesses. The only restriction Sweden ever put in place from a government point of view was limiting events over 50. And Sweden has been on zero deaths now for a while. There, it, it's a, it, it's 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 gone. The 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 case for the right now, there is no more cases, uh, almost no new cases, and there's almost no new deaths in Sweden. Uh, similar to what you find in the United Kingdom, also, uh, although they had masks and they shut down businesses and such. What's interesting is the UK just passed a rule that you can't assemble more than six people. Uh, Australia has passed rules that you can't even speak out against lockdowns. They come to your house and arrest you just for speaking out. Uh, are there lessons? What are they? Well, there's many lessons, and one is that fear and panic is usually the driver of policies, not actual outcome. Sweden is a very good place to compare because they have dense cities and they have uh, suburban areas and they have rural areas. So Stockholm, the city itself of Stockholm, is one of the densest cities in Europe. It's actually about similar density to Chicago and Boston. And they've had a similar death rate to Chicago and Boston. So it's not that Sweden has done better. Uh, they've done similar. They've had similar outcomes. Um, they just haven't done any of or almost none of the government coercive interventions. Um, you look at Stockholm County. So it's a slightly larger region. And they've had similar results or better results to similar population sizes in the United States. But again, they didn't shut down businesses. They didn't close down primary schools. Uh, they didn't close down, you know, they didn't require masks and they've had similar results. And so you can't look at Sweden and just ignore the fact that they've had similar or better results and did not make these draconian decisions. So it makes you wonder if uh, we hadn't done anything, if we would have had similar results. So once everything is reopened fully, how do you think this pandemic will change the way we do business in the months and years ahead? Well, I think a lot of this is politically driven. So the science is simply not there about masks, for example. In fact, science has been studying 
uh, epidemiologists have been studying masks in pandemics for decades. There are many studies on masks. All of them, and there's well over a dozen of them, have shown that there's no real benefit for a general population, for healthy people in a general population to wear masks. The benefit has just never been validated. Uh, that changed this summer. And it wasn't like there was a new study that came out that proved that it was. It was just a political decision. And we can discuss why that is. But it was a politically driven decision. So I think a lot of the policies we will see will depend on which administration is in the White House, um, what the political environment is. It's unfortunately not very well predictable from the actual science itself. Well, I guess we will see how U.S. voters respond on November 3rd to the way all of this has been handled, won't we? So Yunan Weiss, co-founder of RallyPoint and CEO of Cardash, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. Thanks for having me. As COVID-19 shutdowns continue, new statistics show more than half of all people living in New York, Houston, Chicago, and L.A. say they're struggling financially. And another study, this one by Pew Research, shows that more young American adults are living at home with their parents than at any time in documented U.S. history, even more than the Great Depression. Well, here to set us straight on this is Dr. Michael Bussler. Dr. Bussler is a public policy analyst and professor of finance at New Jersey's Stockton University. Dr. Bussler, good to have you with us again. So why are so many young Americans, especially young white men, living at home with at least one parent right now? So there's a number of reasons for it. And uh, it actually has been a trend that's been going on for about 60 years now. So in 1960, uh, looking at people between the ages of 18 and 24, uh, only about 30% of them, slightly less than 30%, lived with their parents. The rest, when you turn 18, you're an adult and you pretty much have to take care of yourself. Just prior to the COVID issue, it had gone up to 47%, and now it's up to 52%. So why is that happening? Well, a couple of reasons. Uh, one, the Affordable Care Act was passed. And when that was passed in 2010, uh, that allowed students, up to, uh, allowed young people up till the age of 26 to stay on their parents' health insurance plan. So as a result of that, Fewer had to go to work and get health insurance, and as a result, they were able to, um, mm. to stay home. Um, in order to cover as many people as possible, the Affordable Care Act said eventually, it phased in over a couple of years, four or five years, but eventually employers had to um, provide health insurance for every full-time employee or pay a $3,000 fine. They defined a full-time employee as anybody that worked over 30 hours a week. So what happened was uh, companies started to reduce people's hours. Instead of having five people working 40 hours a week, let's say to get 200 hours, they hired eight people to work 25 hours a week to get up to that um, uh, to 200 hours. So the result was they did add more jobs. And a lot of people point out, look, Obama added more jobs in the last three years of his administration than Trump did in the first three years of his. And that's true. But all of the jobs, or virtually all of them, were part-time jobs working only 25 hours a week, particularly for young people, 18 to 24, who are relatively low-skilled or unskilled. Um, and when they entered the uh, workforce, they found only part-time jobs. They couldn't be on their own for a part-time job. And as a result, a lot of them moved home. 
So then the virus hit. And so how likely is it we're going to see a shift away from this as more jobs start coming back? We've already added uh, uh, half the number of jobs that were lost from the pandemic. Yeah, um, it's a little bit hard to say exactly, but when, when the virus hit, uh, those that suffered most, that is, lost their jobs first, were the uh, low-skilled, lower-income workers, particularly in that 18 to 24 age group. Uh, so they moved back home. Now, when the virus is uh, finally contained and the economy is growing, we hope those people will, again, go back out and um, uh, take a full-time job again, hope they can get a 40-hour-a-week job, and then they'll they'll be able to move out. You also raise a great point. Um, although we went into a, a very steep recession, it really only lasted, the negative part only lasted from mid-March until the end of, of April. 22 million people were laid off. But starting in May and June and July and August, the economy rebounded extremely rapidly. We have a V-shaped recovery. And in four months, we brought back almost half of all the jobs lost. That should mean that younger people now can go back to work <clears throat> and be able to um, support them, themselves. And we hope to see that percentage go down and uh, adults become a little more independent, which is beneficial for everybody. Well, uh, most of this is a result of six months now of shutdown. So do you think another stimulus is needed? Treasury Secretary Mnuchin says doesn't look like there will be an agreement from Congress, uh, this Congress. From an economic standpoint, I don't think you need any more stimulus. From a political standpoint, you probably do need some, and that's why everybody's fighting to try to get uh, their version. Now, why do I say that? Well, we passed uh, stimulus packages totaling nearly $3 trillion. Um, that was enough to bring the economy, at least start it back, and start on this V-shaped recovery. <clears throat> Unemployed people got whatever their unemployment compensation was. They got $600 a week added to that. Two-thirds of the unemployed were making more money being unemployed than working, and that's uh, an issue. But at least they have money to, to spend. Every American uh, who paid taxes last year or the year before, almost everyone, got a $1,200 check from the government, a family of four, a $3,400 uh, $3, check, rather. That was enough to stimulate the economy and bring things back. Because the deficit is going to be close to $4 trillion this year, $4 trillion this year alone, um, I don't think any more stimulus is needed. I, I think there's enough in there. If we just start opening things up and let people go back to work, I think the economy would continue on this V-shape. Politically, it might be a different story, and everybody's fighting for a stimulus. Okay, Dr. Michael Bussler, professor of finance, public policy analyst from New Jersey Stockton University. Thank you for setting us straight today. We appreciate you. Thank you, Gary. My pleasure. Look forward to doing it again. Cuties and California rewriting the rules. Have we learned nothing from Bill Cosby, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein, and the hashtag MeToo movement? Unfortunately, now we need to add another one, hashtag kids too. Some rich and powerful people are still pushing the exploitation and sexualization of our children. Remember several years ago when actor Corey Feldman warned us about sexual predators in Hollywood? I can tell you that the number one problem in Hollywood was and is and always will be pedophilia. Nobody talks about pedophilia. It's the big secret. And it's widespread? Oh yeah. 
I was surrounded by them. So Netflix streaming cuties should come of no surprise. Folks, let's not be deceived. This is not cinematic art, only a film depicting reality. Cuties is the sexual exploitation of children for profit. When we turn our eyes away from God and his virtues, our vision is obscured. Cuties becomes cute. And then we easily accept new laws like the one signed recently by California Governor Gavin Newsom. It expands judicial discretion in statutory rape cases. So now in the Golden State, a 24-year-old man is unlikely to be placed on the sex offender registry if his male victim is 14 years old and a judge decides the sex was consensual. So this actually means fewer consequences for pedophiles and greater risk to the children of an uninformed public. We are recklessly sliding down a slippery slope. Americans are now streaming child pornography on our tablets and TVs and calling it cute. And we're making it easier for pedophiles and child rapists to slip into the shadows unnoticed by the public, poised to pounce on another child victim. We need to return to teaching our children about the value of service and a hard day's work, not the glitter and glamour of pop culture and how to twerk. Folks, if we don't protect and defend our children and insist on preserving their innocence, our culture is doomed. And those who exploit and abuse them for self-gratification or for profit are also doomed. In the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 42, Jesus warns, If anyone causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be thrown into the sea. No millstones for Senator Ted Cruz. He sent a letter to Attorney General William Barr asking him to investigate if federal child pornography statutes have been violated by Netflix and the producers of Cuties. Yes, there is still hope for our culture. When these things happen, let's not throw up our hands and say, all is lost, it's too late. We are called to be light. We must speak out when we see wrongdoing and evil, and we must work to stop it. Our children and future depend on it. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Parlor, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.